The Louisiana legislature is in session, but there are legislative leaders who'd rather focus on a culture war, hurting transgender children, fomenting racism, misunderstanding our history, than actually solving problems. Why do Louisiana leaders continue finding distractions instead of solving real problems? Is Louisiana in the middle of a culture war? Last week, the House Education Committee was commandeered for five hours over House Bill 564 by Chairman Garofalo, who launched the first salvo in framing the culture war on history and politics and set the tone for the legislature. The far right-wing national agenda is muddying the water with bizarre presentations on Marxism and critical race theory incoherent testimony by the Heritage Foundation with an attack on the democratic ideals of fairness for all citizens. Are we in the backlash phase of Louisiana politics? Are white conservatives focused on racial grievances and fostering a white supremacist agenda and fomenting division instead of focusing on solutions and building a better Louisiana for all citizens? These are the questions. What is really going on? After hours of incoherent testimony, Representative Garofalo could not even define what is critical race theory. But he knew it was important and dangerous and needed to be kept out of schools and colleges. So Louisiana needs a good dose of history and some real truth telling about our past and what is holding us back. We need to talk about some of the real problems in our rural and urban communities. And we do need to talk about the social and political determinants of health. We do need to talk about disparities in educational funding and educational outcomes. We do need to talk about how to address the challenges facing young people and how to improve the criminal justice system. And we also need to talk about why why our legislators want to avoid solving Louisiana's problems. This podcast is called 17 Minutes to Change the World. As chair of Louisiana Progress, I believe that citizens need to be informed, engaged, and mobilized to hold our policymakers accountable. I am Dr. Melissa Flournoy, chair of Louisiana Progress, a former Louisiana legislator and a lifelong advocate. And we're here today with Dr. Roland Mitchell, who's a researcher, leader, teacher, college administrator, um, and a terrific man. So welcome, Dr. Mitchell. It's so glad to have you here with us today. Uh, and thanks for joined, uh, joining us to help sort of explain and build out um, a baseline of information uh, of what's going on. So I'm just going to jump right in with our first question. Yeah. How do you think about this moment in time in Louisiana when there seems to be a hesitancy to talk about the real world problems in society and the implications of public policy on real people. And what are you learning in your life experience uh, as, a, as a college administrator? So there are a couple of things that have become very clear to me in this moment is that um, I think the challenge we face is regardless if we will want to discuss these challenges or not, they're here. They're in our face, we have no choice but to. There is no place where you're insulated from. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the recent unrest around policing, um, if you're talking about what it means for students to be out of school for so long because of the pandemic, 
just more broadly, there's no way that we cannot discuss these issues because they're on our doorstep. And I think that at times the, 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 the challenge that legislators face is that there are so many issues and they are so fragmented that it's even hard for them to understand how to, uh, how to, how to start the conversation, how to move. I'll give you an example. And I think about this all the time. It's easy at this particular moment to assume that what's happening has never been seen before. This is the first, the only, this has never happened. But I'd argue that in the, the, this moment where social media has allowed us to see issues around policing in the community, and that these same issues have always existed as long as there's been communities and organized police forces. That's not a new phenomenon, but I think to broadcast it is something. You could go back to the 60s and I can guarantee you this is the case. Images that we would have seen like say in Birmingham, Alabama or in parts of Memphis where there were these kind of racial, up, these racial riots in, uh, in, the, in the deep south, there would, be, there would be folks that would say be in Maine or New Hampshire or parts of the Northeast where they never really came in contact with large African-American populations. They had no idea what the really issue was about, but they were very clear that when they saw images of police dogs being sick on children and on like older people, they're like, I don't know what the issue is, but whoever is sick in the dog cannot be right. There were white people that became very politicized and organized and they said, I don't know the full issues, but I know what's happening down there that's not the way that you police our citizens. That media coverage, the moment that they no longer showed those images, the civil rights movement no, no longer had the same kind of power, the same kind of movement. And I think what we're seeing right now is the same thing. Social media shows us images that have happened for years, as long as this has happened. But now a lot of folks that aren't directly experiencing it are making hard calls about what's fair, what's not fair, and what's good and what's evil and how we should work in communities. Well, you know, it seems like there's a lot of, um, you know, almost fear on the part of some of these legislators from actually having to address some of the issues. And, and it seems to be a fear that the legislators, you know, are talking in very blunt terms about critical race theory, but they never really have defined it. They don't seem to know exactly what they're trying to communicate. Um, and so how do we... Uh, Based on your academic background and research, can you break it down for us? Can you explain sort of what you think the issue is and what are the problems real or imagined um, that seem to be important given this uh, focus from Representative Garofalo? Yeah, the first thing that I want to say is uh, critical race theory is not a new phenomenon. There's nothing new about it. And I will say as an academic that has written around race and used critical race theory in my work, for the most part in a university, we write things for years. We teach different theories and nobody cares. So I'm impressed, I'm excited that at least there's a conversation outside the ivory tower about any kind of analytic, any theoretical framework that we're using to think has become a conversation piece. But the challenge is um, it's been sensationalized. It's, there's this kind of sloganeering thing. And I think that literally, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're talking about different approaches to economics, different accesses to healthcare, uh, poverty. Critical race theory provides a lens to better understand the way that race and racism impacts our lives, our communities. It's a social theory, it's an analytic. Think of it as a tool to understand a problem. Now, academics use this phrase and they will say race is a social phenomenon that we manufacture. And you can make the case that 
there's nothing qualitatively good or bad about the, the amount of melanin that you have in your skin. There's nothing qualitatively good about it, but we've written certain meanings on top of it. And so part of what critical race theory does is it really does allow us an analytic to understand why is it that it just so happens that there's such a disproportionate number of people of color that tend to be in underperforming schools, that tend to have less access to healthcare, that tend to experience prison at higher rates. All critical race theory does is it gives us an analytic to understand what is it about this thing called race that so drastically impacted our, our society. And to act as if, even though it's a social phenomenon that we manufactured, you can't look at you know health disparities. You can't look at COVID without acknowledging something about race has impacted how people experience um, how sick you get. Do you have access to health care? Where do your children go to school? And to not have that conversation and then not to use race as an analytic actually takes a, a tool out of our, a powerful tool out of our toolbox to solve the problem. That's like literally saying that you want to go in and fight cancer, but you don't want to have access to chemotherapy. There are problems with chemo. Radiation can be a terrible thing, but it's a powerful analytic. It's a powerful tool to address a cancer. And I'd argue that's all critical race theory is. It's an analytic that helps us solve a very complex problem. Well, what do you think uh, Representative Garofalo intended with House Bill 564? And what do you think is sort of driving this legislation in Louisiana uh, in similar conversations across the country? You know, I, I would never be so as presumptuous or so bold as to suggest that I understand the thinking, but I'll give you what, what, what just, you know, the best that I can understand. I would argue that I suspect that people that have taken that position feel as if the discussion about race further divides us and separates us. And then somehow if we don't talk about it, if we don't acknowledge it, that it'll go away. But the problem is, and I, <laughs> this is funny, I use a, a um, uh, Malcolm, Malcolm X said this once, and I hope I don't, I hope I don't mess the quote up, but he would say that to ask Black people to not talk about race is like to ask a person that's sitting on a burning hot stove to not talk about the heat on the bottom. And so the desire to not talk about it because it divides us is, I think, the best interpretation of why not have the conversation, but I'd argue that you can't address a problem if you don't acknowledge the way that it's dividing us. Well, I think that's the real issue. And, you know, we do have a lot of data on uh, that sort of lead you to think that race is a social determinant of health and education and economic outcomes. And uh, how do you think we should be framing these policy issues in Louisiana? I mean, honestly, the, the, the best that I think that we can do, and this is a challenge, this is a real challenge, is to look at the outcome that we're trying to arrive at. And let me be clear, I'm, I'm a pragmatist. So just like I would draw on critical race theory, I also draw on pragmatism. Pragmatism in the sense that, and I don't mean pragmatic in the best way to get something done, but I mean the philosophy pragmatism. Part of their argument would say, we as a community come together, determine where we wanna to get to, what are the things that we wanna achieve? Do we wanna improve? And one of the things that I think that Louisianans are all rallying around right now is the importance of early childhood education. Let's pick that issue that unites us. And we recognize that I, you know, I'm a dean, I work at a university, I work in education. My baby girl, my three-year-old, probably is gonna have resources access to where she's gonna be fine. But I also need to understand that not only does she need to be fine, 
But the more that the students that are around her that don't have access, it improves their outcomes as well. So let's think about it. What are the things that unite us? What are the things that we agree that we want to arrive at? Those are the issues that I think that we start with. I remember there was a time, and actually, uh, you can speak to this better than I can, but I remember sitting in a lot of meetings around uh, race and community reform that were called by the governor's office. And there were moments where we were trying to figure out how to um, knock Louisiana out of being uh, the world's leader in incarceration. Um, and there were folks at the table that on any other issue did not agree. But the one thing that we all agreed on was it is so expensive to incarcerate people. We've got to find a different way to do it. It wasn't because we thought that these were nice people or bad people. It wasn't this kind of bleeding heart because we had love for society. But literally, both groups agreed this is an expensive endeavor that isn't working. That in and of itself, that economic argument drove us all to think about the issue in different ways. Now, clearly, we haven't solved the problem and we have more work to do, but I think that's the key. Find the big pieces, the big picture pieces that we can all agree on, work towards those, and along the way, I think that we'll have to negotiate the smaller issues. Well, you know, you talked about critical race theory as an analytic tool. So how, if you were trying to explain the background of critical race theory, how it's intended to be used, why it's an appropriate construct, I mean, how do, we, how do we explain it to people who um, don't really understand the framework? Yeah, there are a couple of things. So um, academics will talk about the tenets of critical race theory. So there's certain tenets. So like uh, truth telling, um, um, whiteness is property, um, the historical fact. Um, they're those kind of pieces that they would describe. But I'd argue that that's all academic talk. And until you're in a classroom, you're taking or you're reading about it, that doesn't mean a whole lot. But I'll give you an example. I'll give you a prime example of a critical race theory tenet. Okay, the historical record matters a lot. They would argue that the person that controls um, classrooms, teaching, textbooks, curriculum, the dominant voice, the person that tells the story gets to dictate the way the history works. And so they, um, one of the narratives that kind of flows out of uh, critical race theory will be this argument that somehow schools are failing poor children. Public schools are failing poor children, okay? So in particularly poor brown children, black and brown children, poor minority children. So the way that a critical, critical race theorist will look at that argument is they will start by saying, and work with me, historically when we started compulsory schooling in the South, then they would have argued that was a black idea a Negro idea. They would have argued that poor black people could not afford to send their kids to private schools. So they had to pool their resources. Now, the fact that they were pooling their resources is an economic argument. The fact that they were poor because they had just come out of slavery tells you something about race. But to understand how it all comes together, they'd argue that currently, so not just then, but currently, economists will tell you this, the best predictor of future wealth is past wealth. They would also argue that the moment that those schools were started for those poor black children, and I'd argue for poor white children as well, was there ever an intention for those students that were at those poor schools to get the same level of education for wealthy folks that were paying for their kids to go to school, to private schools. They would argue that what schools do now beyond that time period are they reproduce the existing social order. So if you uh, live in a wealthy neighborhood 
And we know that, um, what is it? We know the schools or public schools are financed through um, property taxes. So if you live in a wealthy neighborhood, you probably have more resources to fund your schools as opposed to you live in a poor neighborhood. You go to a school in a working class neighborhood, in a lot of cases, you come out with a working class job. You go to a school in a wealthy neighborhood, you've had more exposure, more access, and nine times out of 10, you're gonna come out with a better educational opportunities and more work opportunities. So they would argue schools aren't failing poor kids or somehow benefiting rich kids. What schools are doing is they're functioning exactly the way that they were produced, that they were set up to do, to reproduce a consistent and predictable social order. Now, critical race theorists could, could tie that into everything from gender. They would look at it from race clearly. They also have a class-based argument. And then they would say, historically, you can make this after the Civil War. You could kind of talk about what they look like after the Civil War. You could look at 1968. So Black power, the end of the Civil Rights Movement. And then you could even look in the early 2000s. And guess what? Schools are now more segregated than they were at the end of the Civil Rights Movement. So they would argue this whole narrative that somehow schools are emancipatory and they're bringing us up and edu nah, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I can show it to you in the historical record. I can make an economic argument. And then I can actually show you currently how it tracks back to specific social movements. Um, and critical race theory is just one of those analyses that allows you to track those movements and hopefully to think about ways that you can intercede and if you can push back against it as opposed to um, not recognizing that these movements are occurring and have continued to occur. It would even argue, if it's predictable, there is no crisis, they're not failing, they're actually functioning exactly the way that they were designed to function. And so what can we do as educators and social theorists to kind of inter interject, to push in, to ask harder questions to sc about schools and schools? Well, you know, Dr. Mitchell, you wrote an article about the school-to-prison pipeline where you talked about this argument you just made about sort of our schools are functioning as they're designed and that we have this predictable outcome. Um, I don't think that's a commonly held belief of our policymakers. I, th I really think that there's a much more... Uh, um, I don't know, rose-colored rose glasses approach to education reform, charter schools, education investment, and really sort of the, the painting that you, you fill in. Um, I'm not sure that there's a, a consensus around that reality. So how do, but I think you're right, okay? And so how do we explain and use data and use the critical race theory and other analytics um, to help frame this issue around education reform in a way that people can hear it. Because my biggest concern right now is that um, we're happier shouting across the divide at one another than trying to explain um, what the current state of affairs are, what are the issues that have led us to this, and then how do we move forward? You know, the, the first thing I would argue is I've written about critical race theorists, but I don't think I would frame myself as a critical race theorist. Um, as a person who studies social theory and social movements, I'd argue that you need to have different multiple tools in your toolbox. You don't have to use critical race theory to make this argument. I don't think that's, that's not if it's attracted this kind of attention and becomes polarizing and people aren't listening anymore, then we can talk about that. But I think that we can agree that our schools do have challenges. 
they're not serving all of our students well. That's one thing that we agree on. Um, the value, and I think um, the, the part of the conversation that I heard from the House bill was the desire to tell, um, to use data and historic facts to tell the story of schools and America schooling. And I think part of the reason that the rose-colored glasses are on is because we have not done a good job at that. So it doesn't have to be critical race theory. But I think that if you really understand what schools do, what schools do and what they don't do, then I think that's the first thing. Let's have a real conversation about what's the role of schooling. Um, and we can even talk about it as a person who is, you know, the dean of a college of education. I know that it's hard to get people to go into the teaching profession. That's, that's a national crisis we're having. So the first thing that I think we have to do is elevate the value of teachers and teaching. Um, I think that we have to tell a different story about teachers and teaching. And one, for certain populations that have been left out of that story, I think the critical race theory, I think, um, um, you know, um, there, there are tons of theories, tons of theories that could actually do that work to make other voices be heard and brought in. That's the first thing. As far as the, the, school, to, the school to prison pipeline art, article, the reason that we wrote the whole article is we were asking questions about not just the pipeline. So I, I'll give you an example. A lot of the students that their first, a lot of the people that end up in prison, their first contact with the prison system is actually in school. So there's something that happens with a school resource officer that's their first engagement. And I can show you, you can track. That first engagement with that resource officer disproportionately makes it more likely that you're gonna end up having continued interactions that eventually will end up in prison. If that's something that we know, we know that something about that school and that resource officer and the way we're using those resources is critically important to solving this problem. The other, the other argument that we make in the, in, in the piece that, I mean, you know, we could talk about this. As it stands, it may very well be the case that if we're producing the existing social order, can the system that we're using produce the types of jobs and employment opportunities that we need? that would keep folks out of the prison system. There's just different ways that we can think about what happens at school, that nexus between homeschool community that can actually push past the challenges that cause people to end up in jails. But what I, what I, what I did worry about is I was thinking about the five hour hearings and this is something I need help thinking through. I told you, I'm excited when I hear something that's happening in a classroom have an impact at the legislature. That's always a good thing because I worry sometimes that they don't recognize that we're here to be a resource. We can be a resource. But the problem is the way that it was framed, and I think what you're saying is exactly right. It was almost used as a boogeyman, like some kind of scare tactic, or somehow that the tradition of who we are as a country is so fragile that it can't take us telling the truth about who we are, where we are, and where we've been. That's the thing that I, I, I worry about that. You can tell the truth about the best part of the American tradition, but also tell the truth about the limitations to that tradition and how they've impacted, you know, a significant part of our population. We got to tell the truth and we've got to be honest about it in ways that you don't have to say that America is the, the worst country in the world or that the U.S., but you can tell the truth about how the practices that we've been a part of have really hurt a lot of our citizens. We can tell the truth about that and we can survive it. My question is, what have we done as educators? Uh, and I say at the university level, at the K through 12, at, the, at any other level, where we've produced a narrative that the average citizen would rather believe 
that having conversations about how to improve the quality of life for all of our citizens is somehow banned. We can't have that conversation. We missed a point somewhere. Something went terribly wrong. Um, I'm excited that that was a, a long hearing, but the hearing should not have been just about the dangers of critical race theory. It should have been about how can we create um, spaces where communities can come together, regardless of black, white, green, and yellow, in ways that are meaningful to improve, you know, not just policy, but to improve quality of life. Um, that article, the, the article that we wrote, we asked some hard questions. And actually, as you can imagine, I got a lot of kickback about the article. But I think that even in the pushback that we get about the article, if it means that we're having a conversation, it's incumbent upon us to better articulate in a way where you don't have to be a PhD or a theorist to be able to follow what, what the importance is. And it doesn't become sloganeered. And the average person who's sitting in middle America seems like, feels like they have something to fear from having a conversation about how to improve quality of life. I feel like somewhere we missed the boat, that we, we should have done better in that. Well, I think you're right. I think that there was a tremendous amount of concern and you know, even fear and trepidation around the, the uh, statements, any statement around systemic racism or any statement around, um, you know, the challenges our country has faced over the last 200 years. And, and any, um, any way you frame that issue uh, of our history and our past that really, you know, I, I believe we've got to deal with the world we live in. And, and some of our past is painful, some of our past is messy, you know, some of our past is a country. Um, hopefully we are continuing to strive to build a more perfect union uh, with each generation. But given sort of this sort of a contentious political, you know, moment in time, um, do you have any advice on how to talk about these issues so that elected officials can hear them? And, should we even be doing training for elected officials on history, race, racism, politics, the Constitution? I was just really concerned that um, there was a real lack of awareness of folks that want to sort of live in the real world, as I like to say. You know, I think there is there is a space for that training to occur, but part of it just has to the temperature has to be brought down. I, I think that it's become literally like critical race theory has become the boogeyman. Um, and truth telling, just, just straight up truth telling, somehow we don't feel comfortable with it. I can tell you, and, and I've shared this with you before, but one of the things that really just blew my mind, actually blew my mind, is I was looking at an article a couple of months ago, I was trying to write an article about the pandemic and how race impacted um, COVID and particularly um, here in Baton Rouge. And so one of the things that I found was I was looking at a map of the formerly enslaved population in 1865. And so it's just demographic information, just being laid on top of it. Well, the article was talking about access to healthcare and it was specifically looking at um, folks who had experienced amputations based on them being diabetic and not getting the health care that they needed. And it's as opposed to whatever kind of vascular health that they needed to get to, to keep their limbs, it was cheaper to basically, you know, perform an amputation. And so as we looked at this map, 
from 2016 of amputees, that map lined up perfectly with the map from 1865 of the enslaved population in 1865, 1890, that time period of the, the formerly enslaved in 1890. Mm -hmm. What that tells me as I look at that is our access to healthcare has improved, but who had, I'm sorry, our, our technology, our understanding of health has improved, but it's an access issue. So we have the technology, but we just don't have the access, and I'd argue maybe even the, the, the will. Maybe we are ignorant. Maybe at best we just don't understand. But if I'm a policymaker, then you don't have to talk about critical race theory. But you look at these pieces. We're talking about you know a century later, and we're having these challenges. If I'm trying to make policies to improve outcomes for the citizens that I provide service to, it's hard for me to talk about that map and that reality without looking at the way that race and class have real material impacts on people's lives and on their bodies. I'd even argue that the doctors that are working in that region don't have to be critical race theorists. They have some very interesting understandings about how their job is impacted by who they provide service to. Those conversations that are just straight up, that's not debatable. You can spin it either way you want to, but we know what the technology says, and we know that we're talking about years later. I think those are instances where we can move outside of the kind of sloganeering and the, the kind of the, the, the polarizing issue. And I like to just ask real hard questions about how we can arrive at solutions. And I don't think that you can think about those solutions without acknowledging that race has had a very, um, a very difficult impact, a very, a very substantial impact on members of our community. Um, Finding those moments, those points in time, those instances, that's it. That, that, I think that's the key to forming the conversation. Because if not, then what ends up happening is it does turn into this, um, like you described, this, you can't even explain what critical race theory is. And in the instance, then it somehow turns into a conversation about patriotism and um, uh, whose history counts. I mean, find the issues that matter to the people in real ways. And, and my argument also, and you've heard me say this before, is one of the reasons that I think that Louisiana is a key place for us to have these rich conversations is we have such a diversity, the second largest population of African-Americans in the country, but beyond the black and white people that live here, there's so many different histories and stories and hues and narratives about who Louisiana is. We could be a place in the country that leads the conversations and how to address these issues by turning a blind eye, we're actually taking away one of our true rich you know, heritages, our, our, our knowledges. We could be a leader in this conversation. Um, and I think that that's the way that we go at it. This is the richness that exists here and we could solve national problems if we just kind of came together and had the hard conversations. Well, well, I agree. And I really appreciate your perspective and your life experience and your clarity. Um, and I think we do need to help our elected officials live in the real world. I'm worried that gerrymandering and having almost exclusively white districts or exclusively African-American districts, you know, we really have limited the opportunities for awareness, for education, for cooperation uh, across communities on barriers based on race and economics. And so really trying to create um, a way for people to learn about what the standard of care is, whether it's healthcare, around quality of education, 
around economic opportunity, around home ownership, and really looking at those uh, social and political determinants, mm. um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, across the state would really be helpful. And so, you know, we call this podcast 17 Minutes to Change the World because we want people okay. to take a few minutes and be an informed advocate and and really want to be engaged in the legislative process. We want people to take a few minutes and contact our legislators because we can believe we can do better in Louisiana if we hold our elected officials accountable to be informed and to be engaged and for us to get mobilized. So we wanna encourage people to follow the legislative session with Louisiana Progress Mm -hmm. um, we want to thank people for listening to our podcast, 17 Minutes to Change the World. Look for us at louisianaprogress.org and check out our advocacy resources. And also follow Louisiana Progress on Facebook and Twitter. So I want to thank you, Dr. Mitchell, and I want to thank all of our uh, Louisiana listeners. It's time to stand up, speak up, and show up because your voice does make a difference. Mm -hmm.